but so yeah, if you want to introduce yourself and then we can go into the discussion. So uh, hello, uh, my name is Corey. Uh, most people, if they're familiar with me all, would probably uh, recognize me from Twitter as uh, Jamaican Jihadi, formerly Don from Yad. Uh, or most people know me as uh, Fidel Cashflow. I'm a member of the Communist Party of Canada and I'm an observer in Jamaica lands. Awesome. And yeah, so as we were kind of talking about before, um, we can start off by talking on the subject of, from your perspective, um, like, you know, living in Canada and then also observing like this new, like uh, American style um, proletarian patriotism, patriotic socialism. I think we agree that that's like, an obvious like revisionism um, and just totally against like any values that the communists should have. So I'd love to hear more about the kind of polemic you've had going forth with, with people who advocate this and, and then also like ideologically why it's necessary to oppose this type of, of revisionism, this type of patriotic socialism. So uh, yeah, I've been, uh, going back and forth with them a bit, uh, mostly online. You'll never see them in real life, but uh, yes, it's 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 the height of revisionism. It's it's not just revisionism. Revisionism. It's a repeat of revisionism because uh, the CPUSA had a similar line back in the 1930s, uh, right up to the 1950s. Two different uh, sets of revisionists. First, the Lovestone. Uh, led CPUSA and then the Browderites, uh, both times uh, culminated in failure, even a liquidation of the Communist Party of USA. And they're repeating the exact same line, something they've seen. And uh, it's been proven that this is the incorrect line to hold, but they're still going down this path because at the heart of it, it is uh, a, a certain US chauvinism and unwillingness to acknowledge the crimes of the empire and just a willingness to, to, to stick to the small benefits mm -hmm. that they gain being settlers instead of siding with uh, the proletariat of the global south and the uh, subjugated proletariat within their own prison house of nations, the USA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think kind of as we were discussing as well, like the insistence on calling uh, a thinker like Frantz Fanon, uh, a liberal, and <laughs> like this this desire to neglect uh, anti-colonial uh, revolutionary struggle in the global south, I think it relates to something that as a group, we we obviously like focus a lot on world systems theory on the global south and anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism is very important aspects of any type of communism that could be synthesized because like, that's where the revolutionary struggle of the world is right now and and honestly has been for a while so i wonder in in the engagement that you've had like what are the type of arguments that people use when they talk about okay for example like i was just observing this with people putting forward the center for political innovation this like new thing that's going on and on the one hand i'm very like i don't really care to even know what american communists are thinking because a lot of it is really like already very out there and it's hard to even expect much from western leftists as it is 
but do you think it's important to demand that like any Western leftism that is created, that it hold anti-imperialism as like an imperative thing um, and support the global South? Uh, yes, uh, living in the imperial core, uh, anti-imperialism should be the, the forefront of any and all organizing that happens because uh, your job as a, as even just the left, it's not necessarily even a, a committed communist, is to oppose uh, your nation's um, imperial action or their, their, their um, impede their ability to assist whatever imperialist they, 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 they count out to. It, most times it is the US. Mm -hmm. uh, and their, their whole uh, line just, it, it pays lip service to that. They will say, you know, they are anti-imperialist and they're against this and they're against that. But even just in rhetoric alone, uh, they, they bow down to, to US chauvinism. They, they, they subject everything to the myth, the, the founding myth that the US has, that the US has founded as a bastion of freedom mm -hmm. and all men were, were created equal and whatever else, other lies they tell themselves. They insist that decolonial thinkers, uh, theoreticians like uh, Fanon, uh, Federici, uh, Aimee Cicere, they're liberals, mm -hmm. but they think of men like Lincoln, who has the record for, for uh, the most uh, indigenous people ever executed mm -hmm. for uh, mass enslavement, they hold him in high regard, they had a statue of him at their their CPI USA conference. Yeah. They had, uh, he's he's one of those cult thinkers in the U.S. I cannot remember his name, but they had one of his uh, one of his uh, students there as a speaker. It is the height of revision, revisionism. I cannot even imagine how someone falls into this uh, line because any study of history will prove that this is the incorrect path unless you are intentionally here to mislead people, to dilute uh, the movement. So whereas you have, say, the DSA who are sheep herders for the Dems, these guys are just, they're not even pulling them into electoralism. They're just dragging them out into the wilderness. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I think also that it's really, it's kind of frustrating to observe because it does reinforce, as you're saying, like I, I saw the picture that sort of circulated around uh, around Twitter of seeing like, you know, holding the American flag up there. And I saw also a lot of like, you know, the defense of it, of the Lincoln thing, for example, was to say like, well, you know, Marx exchanged letters with Lincoln and really liked him, blah, 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 all this stuff. And it's like this appeal to um, really like the individual rather than, than like the theory is like, you know, I don't really know necessarily, um, what about Lincoln theoretically can even be used to like create an anti-imperialist communism? Because like you said, he was a, a part of this genocidal American campaign. So, and of course, like, you know, something in the back of my mind is always like, I just, when I see it, I'm always like, it's just Twitter, just, you know, take a deep breath. And like, like you said, you won't see them uh, offline because they're not really doing anything. They're just kind of, it's bait a lot of it, I think, but it's true though at the same time that like these ideas are influential within like the American left and they do prevent a lot of, of real 
anti-imperialist action from actually manifesting because people are very happy to say like, you know, they want to, they want to do socialism in, in the US or they want to preserve the US as a settler colonial project and they can do it and somehow they can like, you know, conduct socialism within socialism with settler characteristics. Like, and I yeah. don't, I don't really know how that, you know, I don't think that's possible. And it, I, it, it's not, I, it's not possible, but another consequence I've seen of this uh, revisionist line is that uh, Puerto Rico is currently, uh, there, there are a wave of protests in um, Puerto Rico, some for independence, uh, there are teacher, teachers unions marching for better pay, uh, for um, better retirement uh, plans, and uh, there are construction workers in other places who are um, protesting um, for better wages, uh, better working hours, better conditions, and they're not supporting these at all, especially the ones in Puerto Rico. They're, they're, they're just pretending it doesn't exist because a part of their line in upholding uh, the US, um, the bourgeoisie founding myth of the US is that they have to deny any opportunity for uh, Puerto Rican um, independence. They cannot have any self-determination of their own because that is a part of the empire breaking away and they, they want to preserve the empire, which is why they're not for uh, independence, for Hawaiian independence, and they are completely against um, Puerto Rican independence. So if this, this revisionism is allowed to spread on check, it will, even if people aren't convinced of this in particular, some of the lines that they do hold yeah. on say Puerto Rico or Hawaii will seep into, uh, I guess, um, the mainstream uh, left think or ideology it will slowly seep in it's like a poison yeah. a little bit gets into the well and then you know everyone's sick right right no yeah absolutely that that's the problem and then to relate it even further it's like a lot of the the discourse i've seen with this like proletarian patriotism type of thing is very much um against any uh justice for indigenous people within the u.s who were genocided by the american empire they're against land back, for example, they're against like any type of uh, retribution for the crimes of, of American settler colonialism. So it's difficult because, you know, I like to hopefully think this is not too prevalent of an idea, but I think it speaks to like a, a deeper problem with, with the, you know, growth of a labor aristocracy and uh, working class within the the West as a whole that is dependent on extraction from the global South. Like, I think that ideas like these do get more popular and they do get more like, you know, we want to demand uh, not even like, like just like a social democratic party, like DSA or, or whatever, like simple demands, but even making, you know, further structural demands uh, for, for change in the U S of like widespread healthcare. I don't even really know, honestly, like, at this point, what the program of something like the CPI really is, but it's scary to think that there could be this advocacy for for communism within the U.S. Um, that is very much dependent on preserving the American empire, because ultimately, as you're saying, like without that empire being destruct being destroyed um, and its reliance on extraction from from colonized territories, from like neo-colonial territories, and domestically settler colonial regions uh there's no there's no such thing as justice or or 
you know, or communism. And like, if that's, if that's what they think is communism, like I wouldn't call myself a communist by yeah, their- I, I don't want any part of that. Yeah. So even, yeah, I've tried explaining this before and the, the reaction I got was, was not a great one. So um, the, while, while a lot of people, a lot more people see the line as ridiculous, uh, the, the chauvinism is a lot more rampant than it should be. So when I explained that even if they were to get their reform in terms of uh, healthcare, it would come at the expense of the global South. I, I don't remember what I was called. I think it was called, uh, it was called, I think a conservative or something like that. I, I don't remember, but I, told, I explained to them that if the US were to get free medical care tomorrow, it would mean a pivot to, to getting more workers from the global South. For example, uh, the NHS in Britain exists solely on the back of Caribbean workers, people from the West Indies and from uh, Filipino workers. They bypass um, the workers in Britain and they get workers from Jamaica, Trinidad and from the Philippines because they will work for less, work longer hours and demand less because they're in such a precarious position uh, immigration wise. So not only will the work you get uh, the free healthcare, but the workers uh, in the U.S. will then end up in a more uh, precarious position. They'll end up uh, likely uh, lumping because of how expensive uh, living uh, in certain areas of the U.S. is. And it still extracts even more from the global south, a lot of brain drain. Uh, honestly, right now, uh, I'm, I'm Jamaican. I, I grew up there. Uh, Jamaica exists solely on remittances, truly. It's about 20% of our GDP. Every single uh, individual who gains an education that can leave, will leave. That is the situation uh, in my country. And that is just with Britain directly drawing from us. If the US starts to do that, uh, we're, effect we're effectively finished uh, as a country in terms of uh, any development on our own terms. So I tried explaining that and the response is not a great one because people, people aren't willing, I guess, to make sacrifices or personal sacrifices uh, for the, the vision that they should want as communists. They should want uh, an end to extraction from the, the global south, uh, predatory exp extraction. And they should want an end to, to neocolonialism, but they, the, the moment it threatens uh, the benefits that they have or things that they see as rightfully theirs, then they pivot instantly and their stance goes almost to something uh, indecipherable from the, the patriotic socialist line. It's just pure um, Western chauvinism because it's not just the US. Yeah, definitely. And, and I wonder too, like, with kind of what you're describing of like this continued unequal exchange, but now like also on a basis of the brain drain as well being like this extraction also of, of human capital in a way from the global South. Uh, I wonder like what a program designed within, within the West of a communist party can actually look like. So I'm, I'm curious about your experience also kind of that on the US side of things, but um, in the Canadian Communist Party, like what kind of conversations have you experienced on on that front? Have they been slightly better than 
the the rhetoric that has been experienced with like American communist activists um or do or as a whole do you think like something different is needed there needs to be some kind of uh change in the political structure of of left-wing movements in the west and that currently like there is really no party or group that is really focused on like anti-imperialism as a first principle of communism uh so i would say it is better as in the communist party is uh generally better on their lines than their u.s counterparts why there are so many uh they're generally better uh but it is still it does still feel a bit uh how to describe it uh as someone from the global south it does feel like there is a certain lack of urgency um with um these uh parties in the global north so while while the Communist Party of Canada is they they have very good lines and I've I've experienced no um, uh, chauvinism from them they deal with uh, like uh, interparty um, issues quite effectively uh, I do feel like there is a certain lack of urgency that is here because people in the global north are to, to some degree too comfortable mm. uh, there is not the danger is not yet uh, in their faces so that lack of urgency uh makes them a bit uh, lethargic they're not as they're not as uh i say quick to mobilize as uh the global south but things things will change as um conditions worsen as conditions worsen especially with this uh conflict in uh russia and ukraine right yeah so it's soon with the um the, the wheat prices um, are going to skyrocket by, by probably by the end of the year. Uh, conditions are going to get much worse, so maybe then there will be quicker and stronger mobilizations. But generally, for the Communist Party of Canada, their their lines are good, and they they um they are anti-imperialist. They're generally on the right side of uh, uh the contemporary uh, conflicts that we see. Right. Yeah, and, and that was something else I love to get your opinion on is like um with this new crisis that has emerged and like this crisis in the world system what opportunities do you see for global south political change um within like movements within the global south as well to like take advantage of the situation what opportunities do you see for like um you know pushing back against the governments uh, moving quickly towards like nato intervention um like how do you interpret like pluripurality and like the opportunity for a world that isn't solely under u.s hegemony um as like potentially tipping the scales a little bit more in favor of the global south so uh with uh okay so in uni with uh with a unipolar world uh we saw pretty much a dampening on um on revolutions breaking out around the world uh, with the unipolar world, it's so it's so much harder, I guess, to fight back uh, when it's just one giant power controlling everything. Any any direction you push sort of benefits them, but in a multipolar world, you have options, and with those options, while there may be um, a lot of um, say 
inter-imperialist uh, conflict, it does give a lot of communist parties and a lot of movements uh, different options. These options, uh, you, may, you may be getting, say, uh, weapons from an opposing, um, an opposing uh, nation. They're opposed to uh, this imperialist uh, control or monopoly in this specific area. They'll supply you with weapons, but you don't serve their ends. And they're just trying to weaken their opponent, but it does give you options. And options is something that Global South has been lacking for a long time, uh, even before uh, this conflict broke out. Before we were, we were, we could definitely see that we were, we're in, we're, we're in the emergence of a multipolar world. Uh, things started to look different with, um, with vaccines when vaccines were announced. So a lot of uh, global South nations, they, they, they um, lined up to get their vaccines from, from whatever source the, that US approved for them, my country being one of them. And they paid for them and then they didn't get them because the US and Canada took the supply that a lot of global South nations were supposed to get. And a lot of countries had, the countries that, were, that had you know, presidents with a spine, uh, or prime ministers with the spine, they they pivoted to Russia or China, and they got their their share of uh, vaccines. My country, Jamaica, didn't. We were offered free vaccines from Cuba, and we were not allowed to take them. Trump was still president at the time, and he told our prime minister that he couldn't take them, and he didn't. Uh, so, just a situation like that, where there are options for, say, vaccine instead of having to bow to uh, the U.S. because the U.S. was demanding military bases in exchange for vaccines. So, in a situation like that, a nation has options not to uh, further entrench themselves uh, under, say, the U.S.'s control. Um, so, a multipolar world really does open a lot of uh, doors um, for revolutionary parties or parties looking to gain independence because uh, it doesn't always have to be, when it comes to the global south, it doesn't always have to be a communist party, but just breaking free from the imperialist uh, chain is always is always a benefit. Yeah, and I, I wonder on that note, you know, your your own personal experience with that, with that conundrum of, of the fact that like, as you mentioned, Jamaica is still very much under the the influence of like a neo-colonial British influence are still part of this like uh, global north sphere of, of control. And then on, on an even more obvious note, Canada being a NATO member, I wonder like how you've experienced that personally, like this deep control over both Jamaica and Canada with respect to global north American hegemony. And then kind of on, on that second part, like what has been the response in, in Canada as a NATO member and like what has been kind of the, the organization response to, because I know here, like anybody with kind of some principle has been trying to emphasize NATO as like the problem and NATO as the, the thing that should be defeated in this situation. And I wonder similarly, like are those conversations happening in Canada as a NATO member with you know, this like Canadian, the Canadian government has like really gone, you know, full in favor of some level of, of intervention. So yeah, your experience with, with Jamaica and Canada in this circumstance. Uh, well, uh, Jamaica, in, in terms of Jamaica, Jamaica, Jamaica isn't, 
being left in Jamaica is a bit odd for people who are left without uh, like an, a proper political education. They will be leaning um, towards Russia. Jamaicans, uh, Jamaicans historically have a very uh, positive look uh, towards Russia. I think it has a lot to do with uh, their former USSR days and um, the the trading and the the help that they they offered us at uh, various times. But uh, in terms of actual organizations, yeah, they've been very clear on on that the problem that uh, NATO expansion is the issue, and that there should be no intervention whatsoever because it will only uh, escalate the conflict and possibly lead to uh, nuclear war. For Canada, before uh, the conflict broke out, there was a lot of uh, anti-NATO sentiment uh, that I saw. Uh, and now with the conflict breaking out, uh, what I've seen as a person living in um, in Toronto, because Toronto is pretty, uh, pretty heavily uh, uh, immigrant city. It's pretty like, I think 40% of Canada was born outside of can 40% of Toronto was born outside of Canada. Uh, so a lot of people are minding their business. They're not, they're not pro anything, they're not pro-intervention, they're not pro-Russia, they're not pro-Ukraine. It's just it's another conflict because they they're from the global south. They've seen conflict before. It, you know, for a lot of people, it's only um they're only paying attention, it's only special because it's right on the doorstep of the Western world, as it were, because Ukraine is slowly being accepted into the West. So a lot of people aren't really paying attention to the conflict. Uh, organizations here have been organizing uh, or well, mobilizing against, um, against uh, NATO intervention. They're protesting at the, the embassies, uh, different offices. Uh, saying, you know, no to NATO intervention, uh, Canada should not um, enter the war. So on that front, it is good. But in terms of Canadians, Canadians, uh, that, that's potentially problematic, me uh, describing it that way. But yeah, they're, they're more uh, pro-Ukraine. Right. There are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of Ukrainian flags, just like, like a five-minute drive south of where I'm just, Right, but to be fair, it is a a, a Ukrainian area. There, uh, okay, yeah, but that's that that brings its own problems because the, the Ukraine, a lot of the Ukrainians that uh, came to Canada um, post World War II were um, were Nazi rescues. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah, when you wanted to, if you wanted to get into Canada, all you had to do was show your SS tattoo, and you, you get it. Wow. Yeah. So wow. It, it's it's not great. <laughs> that's crazy. Um... I mean that that seems like that's something that people have been have been trying to point out and trying to do it in a nuanced way to say like you know people shouldn't forget about the Azov battalion um, and I think that like you know there's there's a a conversation to be had there about like the the U.S. Uh, I mean everybody's familiar with like Operation Paperclip and the history of the U.S. like supporting uh the the third reich after world war ii had ended um but you know today it's like i think you literally get like a post deleted on different social media accounts if you if you point that out that history so yeah, it's it's definitely a, a troubling time um another another subject i did want to ask you about uh with respect to jamaica is just 
kind of your perspective on continuing this conversation about like neocolonialism is what strikes you as like um, the worst kind of features of neocolonialism. I know also that Jamaica is, is uh, celebrating 60 years of independence this year. And I wonder in that, in that 60 years, like what has changed beyond just like getting out of the British direct colonial rule and trying to move towards something like independence, you know, what's the extent of neocolonialism that you experience when you, when you travel back to Jamaica? Uh, so Jamaica is not independent. There's uh, uh, Walter uh, Rodney uh, speech because Groundings, the book Groundings is actually a collection of speeches. Uh, and it, he makes it clear that uh, Jamaica has experienced no independence and that not even just Jamaica, but the, the, the Caribbean uh, as a whole isn't really independent. They were granted that quote unquote uh, nominal independence, but what they did was hand off the reins to uh, black compradors within these countries. But in Jamaica's case, it wasn't even that. The same people that rule Jamaica now were the same families that had the majority of the population enslaved. Nothing has changed except for the name and the fact that we, we get to call ourselves independent. Uh, for all intents and purposes, we are still, well, we're not, we're not, a, we're not a British neocolonial uh, holding so much as we're a US holding now, while the British does hold a lot of influence over specific industries. Uh, it is, we are, we belong to the U United States and they, they make sure we know it. Uh, we cannot even get uh, 5G in uh, Jamaica. We tried to get, uh, we were offered uh, 5G towers uh, by China. They were going to build them for us because Jamaica has a really good relationship with uh, China. And historically, historically, they always had because of uh, shared British colonialism. Yeah, there are a lot of Chinese uh, Jamaicans that still have connections to their motherland. So there's a good relationship there. Uh, they offered to build us 5G towers. And again, we were told that we could not accept it because the Chinese are going to spy on us. The, un, the unspoken part of that is only we are allowed to spy on you because US has acted on information that was uh, only known between two MPs before. They spoke into each other face to face and the US acted on that information because they are spying on us and they make no secret of it, but it is clear that we, we belong to them. They consider us their backyard, which is why they're so opposed to uh, the events that are taking place in, in uh, Barbados. Barbados are building up towards their, they're building infrastructure that can make them slightly more independent uh, from US control. And the rhetoric uh, there is that China is trying to invade their backyard. Is deeply ridiculous because we do, we do not belong to the United States. None of us do. But uh, one, there is a silver lining to the US being as uh, belligerent as they are. It kills the myth uh, in Jamaica that the US is the shining city on the hill, uh, that they want what's, what's best for us or what's good for us. And that is, that is always a benefit. Uh, though while Jam Jamaicans, they have a, an issue of, I guess, double think because you will, it's, it's, you'll be hard pressed to find someone in Jamaica that's genuinely negative towards uh, Cuba or Castro, but they're also, they also view the US positively. And that's, 
that's a that's that comes straight from ignorance from our uh, education system omitting um, details of world history because they know those those two things are opposing views. And I wonder on on the note of of China specifically, like Jamaica joined the Belt and Road Initiative in 2019 and has had a, a huge amount of infrastructure, um, like highways being developed by China. And I wonder what the perspective on that is. Like, um, obviously we know the US perspective on the Belt and Road Initiative is, you know, getting like talking heads to call it, you know, neo-colonialism, neo-imperialism, whatever. Um, and that's obviously not true. But I wonder what the perspective in Jamaica is on like on this infrastructure and the Belt and Road Initiative being developed. Um, and then I guess my other on that similar note with this like South South cooperation that China represents um, with the Belt and Road Initiative, and and you mentioned earlier with Cuba with the vaccines. Um, you know what is the relationship with Jamaica and Cuba still like today? And um, and yeah, if you can expand on those those two South South relationships. Okay, so for China, China even I think before officially joining the Belt Road Initiative, we had a lot of infrastructure projects with uh, China. A lot of the bridges, toll roads, everything that a lot of the things that we have built were built uh, by uh, Chinese corporations. Sometimes, I guess depending on the specific uh, company, they may use entirely Chinese workers or they may use uh, uh, Chinese workers and Jamaican workers. Uh, but yeah, they do a lot of infrastructure building. Um, they're building a highway, a uh, giant, a really long stretch of highway from past the town that I, that I was raised in uh, right now. So generally, I'll actually explain that uh, I've seen it go from a uh, general positive view of it with some skepticism towards uh, how many you know, Jamaican workers they were hiring. Uh, they weren't hiring, they, to the general public, they weren't hiring enough Jamaicans, but that has changed over time. And so has the view of them. So it, instead of just mostly positive, it's just entirely positive now because there isn't a drawback to getting infrastructure that you control. There's, there's no drawback there. So it's, um, seen overwhelmingly positively, but there are some, uh, I guess, the people who are like finance bros or who work in finance, they tend to be more US leaning. And so they tend to have a platform and they're they're very vocally anti-China. But again, uh, people in the global South tend to be deeply pr pragmatic people. You have to be to survive. So I mean, it's just rhetoric. It doesn't, people can see what is getting done, what is meeting their, their material needs. And they understand that you can say whatever you want. It's whoever gets stuff done. And the US has never helped us to do anything. Uh, as for Cuba, uh, Jamaican view of Cuba has been positive my entire life. Uh, it was a big part in leading me to, to communism because uh, it was, I guess, experiencing cultural shock with people when people did not like Castro <laughs> that uh, made me start looking into things. So in Jamaica, Castro is, is practically revered. He's loved. Uh, Jamaica and Cuba historically had a very great relationship. Um, there was a, a different points when the uh, US-backed um, prime minister, uh, 
it was essentially put in place by the CIA. They did a lot of orchestrating, uh, shipping a lot of guns into Jamaica to destabilize the, the region. And we still suffer from that today. But uh, yeah, when he was in power, there was a bit of a uh, rockier relationship, but it was still uh, good for the most part because it's not one of those relationships where it's shaped by the state's view of uh, the the nation, like with the U.S. As soon as the, the U.S. government hates someone, the people start finding reasons to hate them as well. We don't have that. We're, we have a very fraternal relationship with the Cuban people. So it didn't work uh, when the state uh, opposed certain things uh, like black nationalism or any of that. It didn't It didn't really work out for them. Uh, I made them incredibly unpopular. And even now, uh, there are Cuban uh, doctor divisions in, in Jamaica pretty much every day of the year. Uh, and it's kind of the norm. It's not really seen as a, oh, this is happening because that's, that's the way we were very close nations. Even uh, in the nineties during a special period, there were Jamaicans smuggling uh, medicine to Cuba during the blockade. So we're very close and while our prime minister right now is uh, a US uh, lapdog, he cannot do anything about it because it would it would spell the end to to any hopes he has of uh, getting reelected or staying popular or even being tolerated. Uh, but he is also trying to sell our national water uh, company, which is mostly nationalized. He's trying to sell it to Israel of all people. Yeah, so that's terrifying. I had no idea that was happening. That is awful to hear. Um, that that is in the process of happening right now. They're trying to do it. I don't know if they've started the process. There is a certain billionaire who uh, who is he's he's uh, Jamaican Canadian or Canadian Jamaican, whatever. Uh, he is trying his very best to facilitate that deal, and uh, he's been he's even spoken about it publicly. It was in the newspapers and everything. Uh, yeah, I hope nothing nothing of the sort happens because. I can only imagine uh, what they would do with that kind of control over a water supply. Right. No, that that's awful. And and to imagine uh, to imagine the apartheid state, you know, running a water supply in Jamaica is like a very frightening idea. And I wonder. I mean, that's kind of that's also very fascinating to hear. Um, you know, Israel is obviously a settler colonial power, but it's it's also fascinating to see the way in which they've been able to develop too as a, a colonial power beyond the borders of uh of occupied palestine um and into into jamaica which is i didn't know that at all and that's something uh, very scary to observe so israel actually does a lot uh uh they're uh they're trying to to expand uh into a lot of areas especially mm -hmm. especially in africa they're an observer in the, 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 the African Union, which is yeah. deeply ridiculous. But they do uh, employ slave labor uh, on, um, on the continent. They're like a lot of atrocities uh, that are actually, uh, that people accuse China of are actually done by Israel in the global south. And it, 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 is, it is ridiculous that it's never spoken about. There's no attention to it whatsoever. Yeah. And Israel... It's 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 uh, Israel shouldn't even really be counted as their own independent entity. They are just an extension of the of the U.S., just like uh, South Korea. 
Right. They're an extension of uh, U.S. military power. Right. And they operate as such. Uh, this is just, um, it's just ridiculous the things that uh, Israel uh, gets away with just because they're, uh, they're basically a part of the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, we have actually as a group done a little bit of um, like interviews and discussions with uh, Africa for Palestine as a group and like talk to them about Israel's influence within uh, within South Africa, the pro-Palestine movement in South Africa, which is really incredible. Uh, and also talk to the recent organi the organizers of the recent uh, Pan-African Anti-Apartheid Conference, which took place in Dakar over last weekend, I think, where they had similarly like the demand to get Israel out of the AU to you know push the, the African Union and the African continent as a whole to stand with Palestine. So that is that it's definitely I have like observed a little bit of the the resistance to Israel and resistance to apartheid within the African continent. But I, I didn't know that they they were also going after Jamaica as well. So it's 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 fascinating to see like how important standing with Palestine, too, is like for all uh, for all people all over the world and particularly in the global south. Um, Honestly, the last thing that I had wanted to ask you about that you mentioned um, was Walter Rodney in Jamaica, because I, I got the chance to learn a little bit more about his role in Jamaica as well with the reading a little bit about the Rodney riots and the situation that, that occurred with that. So I wonder if, uh, you know, how much you know about that. And also like, how is that remembered today in Jamaica itself with the, the situation that happened when he was when he was there at the University of the West Indies? Uh, so uh, uh, I know I know a bit about uh, Walter Rodney. Uh, he he came, he came to Jamaica first as a student. He went to the University of the West Indies, then left. Uh, he did uh, travel internationally. I know he went to Tanzania before he came back and taught at the University of the West Indies. He was very close to the Rastafarian community here. Well, I, mean, I say here, but in Jamaica and. Um, uh, it did uh, shape his approach to um, to uh, speaking with dealing with the masses, speaking to the masses, educating the masses. Uh, that's how he uh, developed uh, what he called uh, groundings, which is basically the mass line. But right. I guess it's more uh, geared towards um, the the specific conditions of, uh, of Jamaica and um, the the rest of the community. Uh, he was very loved in Jamaica, which is why when he was banned from the island, um, while he was here in Canada, he was here in Man Montreal, I think at a Pan-African conference, okay. he was subsequently uh, banned from the island, couldn't return. His wife was still there. Mm -hmm. uh, she was pregnant at the time during the Rodney riots and they tear gassed her. Wow. Uh, yeah. So it was the largest riot in Jamaican history. And Jamaica is a lot less... Um, radical now but they used to have a lot of rides especially over gas prices right so for that for it to be the biggest in our history is really something Incredible. Uh, but yes uh it's one of the things that i like uh about jamaica jamaica has no qualms about uh embracing radical figures that's that's something i really love about us we're not uh like uh the u.s where oh he was an authoritarian like we don't know what that is either things get done or they don't <laughs> yeah yeah, well, 
uh, thank you so much um, for taking taking some time today to talk to me about all this and and thanks for also you know talking a little bit more about the rise of this uh, very unfortunate develop well, not a new development obviously but like this uh, revived revisionism of of um, proletarian patriotism but also about about the alternatives as you're talking about about south south cooperation and communism as a as a strong movement in the global south and the prospects for that in the world right now i guess the last thing uh, to ask is if you have anything on these kind of subjects that you have read that would be worth reading to kind of um, follow up and and learn more kind of on all the different subjects we discussed uh, or anything you want to plug yeah the the last couple of minutes are yours uh, well, uh, I guess uh, it's where I say uh, read uh, Walter Rodney. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, one of the, the important things to do if someone is, say, uh, a leftist or a communist in the US is to uh, read more from people who uh, lived and fought and waged revolution in the global south. Uh, a lot of people kind of dismiss um, Fanon and uh, uh, I mean, their their uh, their theories on colonialism and uh, combating colonialism, decolonialism, are very important. People should definitely read them. And as for uh, things very pertinent to uh, contemporary stuff, Jamaica Lands does a lot uh, on um, the global south, and they have a lot of connections with um, with Venezuela, Cuba, all the 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 global South nations that are currently uh, fighting against uh, the U.S. imperialism. And they're uh, at, you can go to uh, jalands.org. So it's j-a-l-a-n-d-s.org. And you can find um, information. They do uh, news, uh, news updates right on the site. You can just listen to them like podcasts. And uh, they often put out uh, written pieces. Uh, and you can follow them on Twitter at LANDS underscore JA. And yeah, they'll be, they're a great source of news uh, on the Global South. And they, if you want something specific to Jamaica, they're, they're excellent for that. So yeah, that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll definitely stay in touch because anytime I see something on Twitter, uh, you know, on these subjects or just anytime like, um, to follow up on the conversations we've had, I'll, I'll stay in touch and uh, uh, and maybe you know if you're interested, we can always do like a follow up if there's something you really would like to talk about. We're we're honestly just getting started, so we're just still doing a lot of interviews and um, really happy to continue like highlighting anything within the the framework of like a global South communism. So thanks so much, I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Yeah, I look forward to to. You know, speaking with you again. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye.